Welcome to the Sacred Feminine Power podcast, where we explore the many facets of feminine power and why it is so important for women and for men to step into this power in our world at this time. This is Emmy from Feminine Revered, and my magical guest for today is Juanita Robertson. Juanita is the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. She hasn't always known this, but she's always been moving toward it. She started her healing journey at a young age and is a shaman. It has taken her a long time to grow into this, to grow into her, mostly because she never quite understood why a person would choose this life. Now she understands that this life chooses you. Welcome, Juanita. Thank you very much. It's so great to be here. It's a blessing to have you with us. And I am so, so very excited about this conversation and looking forward to learning from you today. Hmm. Now, since my podcast is called Sacred Feminine Power, I always like to start by asking my guests, what does sacred feminine power mean to you personally? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, for me, there's something about something that the feminine carries you know, uh, that is so misunderstood. We hear a lot these days around toxic masculinity. Well, we can't have toxic masculinity without also having toxic femininity. <laughs> and so, so for me, the sacred feminine is how do we stand in the light side of the feminine? And that has lots of gifts you know, that we bring. I love in Bill Plotkin's book, Soulcraft, where he talks about um, the collective, the, the journey to spirit, which is an ascending journey. It's where the collective we lives. It's where oneness and, and, um, and, and compassion lives he says, is a masculine journey. It's an ascending journey. It's why we have more ministers and priests that are men than women. But the descending journey to the soul is a feminine journey. That's why we have more witches than warlocks. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I love that he speaks about, and also Iron, um, Robert Bly and Iron John talks about this, about you can only be initiated through the descent. And so um, even men in their initiation are initiated through the feminine. They, he says, um, Robert Bly says that they need two births, one from a male, a female mother, and then a male mother, a nurturing man to be initiated into their manhood. And so the feminine carries us inward. It carries us into ourselves. It's where our soul gets to meet itself. Also, what I think is, um, when I was thinking about that piece with from Bill Plotkin, and, and what came to me one morning as I woke was this piece around in the spiritual walk where the, the collective we is held by the masculine and the individual I is held by the feminine. In the earthly walk, it's just the opposite. The collective we is held by the feminine and the individual I is held by the masculine. And it's how I think we are constantly finding balance then from the masculine to the feminine and heaven and earth. Mm, beautiful. I love that. And I love how you talked about the descending journey to, to the soul being the feminine journey. And 
Yeah, everything that you said was just so beautiful. And I am for sure going to check out uh, Bill Plotkin based on what you just said as well. Now, Juanita, I'm very, very intrigued to learn more about you as well. And I was wondering if you could share one challenge that you have faced that's really helped you to understand at a deeper level and activate the sacred feminine power within you and on your life's path. Mm. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because I uh, <laughs> the first thing that came to me, and I'll speak to this, is actually being a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two birth children, I'll say, um, because I have lots of community children, <laughs> but I have a son who is 19 and a daughter who's 17. And when they were really young, I made a decision to um, stay home with him. And I worked from home most of um, their lives. And one of the things, and that was really a hard choice for me because I was working a lot before Um, My children was born, but there was a way that I wanted to mother them that didn't, I don't think, come, uh, didn't come easy. I don't know if that's the right word or um, wasn't flow in it, I guess. Um, And and so there's a there's a wonderful book called, um, oh, Perfect Madness, Mothering in the Age of Anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I'm 50 years old and it talks about women who are about my age, a little bit older, a little bit younger, and how we were raised to be businesswomen. We weren't raised to be mothers. Mm-hmm. And so what has happened in our culture is we manage our children instead of mother them. Yeah. That's why we get the soccer moms. That's why our kids are so overbooked and, and you know, we treat them like product. And I didn't want that for my children. And I used to call when I was home with them when they were real little, I called them my Miyagi moments from Karate Kid. (laughs) It was teaching me, you know, it's this, it's this practice and learning. And I learned so much um, from being with them and paying attention to even like how the different things that my son needs from me than that my daughter needs from the very beginning. You know, one of the things with children that we're not off often told is that children don't come with their own stuff. And so they're like sponges. So like for the first seven years of their life, all they can do is absorb the energy around them. Mm. So you can pay attention to like how your children are being when they're that young and it'll give you clues for where you are. So for example, I could tell when my then husband, when his, um, when he was having a really, hard week with his mother's death because my son would get really clingy to me Mm. or when my daughter was you know like ranting and raving through the house because she was angry or mad it was because i wasn't tending to my own anger Mm. and so you know they've just um constantly are still even now teaching me i think my son is one of the most patient people i know and also one of the people that I think is most comfortable in his own skin than anyone else that I've met. Hmm. Beautiful. And I so resonate with everything that you say. And I see that same reflected in my own kids who are a little bit younger than yours, but I have a very similar age gap. And I really consider my son, my biggest teacher. And I notice immediately if my energy is off, his energy will be off and he will be acting up. 
And it's really been this beautiful mirroring exercise where when I notice him starting to go into this state where he is clearly not himself and he's clearly not feeling that great, I check in with myself as well. And I see you know, how can I ground myself? How can I root myself in this moment and also switch my own energy? You know, it's interesting because I'm just sitting here thinking about that and I hadn't thought made this connection before, but it's the... It's always the external is always reflecting the internal. You know, I say that a lot, but I hadn't thought about where I first started to notice that was with my children, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't think anything can show up externally that's not not reflecting for us a belief system that we're carrying. You know, I think the universe wants to prove us right, mm-hmm. conscious and unconscious belief systems. <laughs> and so it sends us evidence for that. But we think it's just the opposite. We think that I I get all these experiences, so then that forms my belief systems. Instead of, I have a belief system, and it calls up all these experiences to prove me right. Mm, Absolutely. And sometimes if that if that belief system or specific beliefs are based on traumatic experiences, then those beliefs can kind of keep on attracting events and people into our lives that keep Mm -hmm. reinforcing that limiting belief as well. I think it kind of works both ways and really kind of goes to prove the the, the saying that what you think you, you manifest or what you think you bring into your life as well. Yeah, but what what I love about that, actually, I think that, you know, we're such amazing beings because, um, you know, in those traumatic experiences that we can keep calling up the same experience over and over because that's the belief that we hold, right? Mm-hmm. It's because trauma wants to be healed and it'll always float to the surface. That's right. And so it keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back to give you a chance to, again, to heal it. Because the universe is so generous in that way. (laughs) It doesn't feel generous (laughs) in the moment, but, you know, it's like nothing can show up that's not in service to you. Yes, I love that. Yeah. And so it's the difference between the question of why is this happening to me to why is this happening for me? Yes. That changes everything. Absolutely. I love how you brought that in. And it's it is so true what you're saying. And I think the same goes also for, you know, if if pain or certain illnesses or certain diseases keep up showing in our bodies, we we've kind of been conditioned to think that, oh my goodness me, I am sick now. I have to heal this. I need to get rid of the symptom. And then once we start to reflect on it, reflect on it at a deeper level and really to understand that your body is giving you signals it's because your body wants to heal and it's giving you messages to look deeper and start to understand why you have these symptoms and to have the opportunity to heal them at the root cause where it all lies. Yeah, because I think we get an opportunity to heal stuff first on a spiritual level, mm. because that's the it's the you know kind of fastest moving energy, and then if we don't do it there, we can heal it on an emotional level, mm-hmm. because the energy then gets a little bit more dense, <laughs> and then if we don't heal it there, we get it on a physical level, mm-hmm. which is the densest form of the energy. Yeah, and you know I don't think that the divine or, you know, um, judges or is like 
punishing us because we didn't do the healing on a spiritual level. I actually think we really do have free will. Mm-hmm. So it's not judgmental in that way. It's just exact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it doesn't, we get to have the experience that we choose. And, you know, I think we really can't do it wrong. We so are so often afraid of messing it up or doing it the wrong way. And I don't think that that's possible. I think when we really understand that we're spiritual beings having a human experience and not the other way around, then everything is in service to growing our spirit. So like you said at the very beginning in introducing me, that I was the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. Well, I can be that by choosing to forgive everybody in my life and living a life that does that, or by choosing to never forgive anybody and live my life in that way. Because either way, when I leave this this earth plane, I am going to have grown my spirit through lessons of forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I would actually love to explore that topic a little bit further as well, because I know you do a lot of forgiveness and reconciliation work, obviously within yourself, but then also in the larger community. And I was wondering if you'd like to tell us a little bit more about that work. Yes. Um, you know, it's so funny because I think it's I'm, part of it, I think, comes out of constantly looking for what brings us back into balance. Mm. You know, and so it's forgiveness and reconciliation, first of all, within ourselves. What are the parts in ourselves that are wanting to be um, reintegrated back in Mm -hmm. because we've casted them out or aside? What um, it's forgiveness and reconciliation in our interpersonal relationships with others. What is looking there to be healed and reconciled? It's um, the larger community or organizational reconciliation. And, you know, I think that uh, it shows up in lots of different ways. So it shows up in my coaching practice. So when I'm coaching people, um, because we carry so much this belief that we're compartmentalized people, we can take our work self to work, our home self at home, instead of no, we're whole human beings. We're supposed to bring all of who we are everywhere we go. And we do, whether we're conscious of it or not. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, it's in my circle practice and working with organizations or with communities or even in just my one-to-one relationships in the practice of circle. What does it mean to lean into the center together and trust the space that's between us and trust that we have everything that we need and show up with... um, the ability to ask for what I need and to trust that the person will offer whatever they can, but not making someone else responsible for me. Um, it's in my book that actually we're finishing up now and it'll be out sometime this year called The Inner Ground Railroad, A 40-Day Journey to Remembering Soul and Spirit that's designed to heal the ancestor legacy of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um And it doesn't matter what enslaves you because bondage is bondage and freedom is freedom. (laughs) And uh, it's, you know, so it shows up in my, um, I co, 
lead a 16-month leadership rite of passage program for adults because what we found is that this country or this culture, not just this country, um, is so full of adolescent adults. We're growing older, but we're not growing up. And so this question about how do you initiate adults? And so that's just, that's that soul process that we talked about before. It's the feminine, it's the descent. It's the soul meeting itself. Because when the soul meets itself, we get really clear about what unique genius you're bringing into the world and what only you can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, and I think, Our listeners would be really curious to know a little bit more about this leadership program. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about the content and the initiation process that you take adults through? Yes. So I co-host the, it's called Fire and Water. Um, And I co-host it with um, my partner, Tennyson Wolf. And we um, have, we finished a cohort in November, started another one this February, and actually are starting a new cohort this August, um, later um, next month. And what we do is it's 16 months. During that 16 months, there's three five-day retreats, and those are centered around the idea of the hero's journey. So the first retreat is centered around the departure, the second one, the journey itself, and the third one, the return. And um, we also have um, a lot of the program then in between space is online. So we use Basecamp as a format to do some question, monthly kind of question and communication with each other. We also have whole group calls on Zoom every other month. And then there's small um, groups in the cohort too. So people meet with their small groups at least once a month. And the small group are the people that you're traveling with. One of the things that we were kind of struck by in the beginning and planning to do this is rite of passage typically is culturally specific. Mm. And, you know, we are, I live here in the U.S. and so we have a diverse culture. And so the question was, how do you do a culturally specific diverse initiation? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what we came up with is every participant gets access to their ancestral DNA. We send them a DNA kit when they sign up with us. And um, then so then they get to choose which lineage they want to dive deeper into. Mm -hmm. And so even though we're doing this journey together, it's still very much an individual experience. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing. And I love how you incorporated the the um, ancestral lineage there and and for your participants to to choose which lineage they will focus on and and journey with deeper into their inner inner selves and their into their souls really that's beautiful yeah i think part of it is because we also want to hold the longer arc of things mm-hmm. you know we have our own experience Um, But we're connected to those who have come before us and those who will come after us. And it's this piece about remembering that we're not alone. We live in such a culture that holds up this myth of independence. And, you know, I say myth of independence because um, we're all dependent on each other. We're always dependent. We breathe the same air. We're walking on the same earth. You cannot not be dependent. The question then is whether we're standing in fear 
and scarcity, and then therefore are codependent, are standing in abundance and love, and therefore we're interdependent. But we're always dependent. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really beautiful way of explaining it because I think very often we've kind of been taught to think of um, dependency as something that we should strive away from. And as you say, there is this huge focus on becoming independent and being able to get through anything on your own. And and you're really just shifting that paradigm and looking at dependency as something that can nurture and nourish us instead. Yes. And I think that we get to be individuals. Now, Mm -hmm. even though we don't get to be independent, we do get to be individuals. (laughs) And we get to show up and take responsibility for the pieces that are ours. Um, I think sometimes when we say there's no such thing as independence, I think people misunderstand and think, I mean, you can't be your own self. Like there's no space for just the I that's you. And that's not what I'm saying. I think that um, that this piece about how do we go it together? How do we really understand that as human beings, we weren't meant to go alone and you can't. There's nothing really that we ever do that's completely alone. And so how do we open to learning then? How do we be in this together? What are, you know, the things that I have mistaken that I thought were one thing and and end up learning are a total different thing. Like, um, for instance, when I got divorced, I have shared with people that the day that um, I told my, I call him my husband, (laughs) I told my husband that, uh, that I thought we should move toward divorce, I actually felt more capable that day of being his wife than ever before. Mm -hmm. I stood in more love and truth and honesty and integrity than I ever had. And I never would have guessed that love would feel like that or that that's what it would feel like to be his wife. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, so this piece about, are we open to learning? I think one of the biggest... Um, misunderstandings we have about our relationships is we think we get to choose. We think we get to choose who we are with each other instead of discover. We already have sacred contracts with each other. So our job isn't to choose. Our job is to discover who are we now. Mm. And when we think we get to choose, it's actually pretty messy. Right. So, (laughs) you know, because we're trying to make it be what we want it to be instead of really honoring what's already here. Mm, that is so true. And it's really making me reflect on my own life situation as well. That's beautiful. And I, I love how you just described there that um, the, the, the moment of the day when you told your husband or, or husband <laughs> that yes. you wanted to move towards divorce, that that is when you stood more in love, in honesty and integrity and in your own power than ever before in that marriage. That's beautiful. Yes. And I, you know, um, I remember him being in such grief. And one of the things I think, though, is I think he thought he was in such grief because his marriage was ending. But I don't think that's what was happening. I think that we had an unconscious agreement. And the unconscious agreement that we had is, you know, I'm an incest survivor. And so I felt safe with him. So my unconscious agreement with him was that I would be in a place where I could feel safe and secure 
and in exchange, I would carry his pain. Because I had been born and raised to do that. I knew how to do that. (laughs) And when at that point, when I said, no, it's time to get divorced, it's I stopped carrying his pain. And so the deep grief he was in was because for the first time, and I think at that point, around 26 years that we had known each other, he was having to carry his own pain. Mm. Wow. I love the depth of um, knowing that you have around this. And I really appreciate that you've you've shared it with me and the audience. So thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Now, you you are also a shaman, Juanita, and I would love to hear a bit more about how you bring this shamanic perspective and shamanic practices and way of being and living into the work that you do. Well, I think, you know, the first kind of response I think that comes to me is how could I not? <laughs> I mean, I think that... that Um, it's just so much a part of who I am and I don't like, uh, the medicine really did call, find me, you know, I, I do a lot of work with the dagger medicine wheel from West Africa and Burkina Faso. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, when I first met my teacher around the wheel, Jojo Pam Maria, um, and I was working for an organization and she was actually working as a regional person. And the first day I started, I showed up at work. She happened to be in town. She didn't live in the town that I lived in at that moment, but she was in town for one day before she was leaving to go on leave because her mother was dying. Hmm. And I remember being so struck by her. And I didn't know what it was because I didn't know her. I just met her. You know, I just started this job. She was there. <laughs> And um, and then what happened was about six months later, we were at an all-staff gathering and her mother had passed and she was there. And I remember going up to her and just saying, I've been waiting for you. Mm. And I didn't know why I was saying that to her. <laughs> I just felt it. and And I've just learned to trust my intuition and what I think I'm supposed to say and be with people. And I remember her just holding my hands in hers and just smiling and looking at me. And and then um, later that year, I gave birth to my son. And I decided when the program year was over, I was going to leave the organization. Well, she also was leaving the organization at around the same time to go on the road and um, do a nomad kind of life for a bit. I think she was on the road for five years. Mm-hmm. And our house was one of the places that she would stop by and stay as she was going across the country. And so um, she'd come in in the middle of the night usually because she'd been driving late. And then sometimes she'd stay for two days. Sometimes she'd stay for two weeks. We didn't know. But it started this kind of journey of working with me um, around the wheel and around this medicine. And I really do believe that the wheel chose me. I didn't choose it. And that um, it's continued to work me. You know, for a while, people would ask me, 
if I was a shaman and I shied away and I would just say, well, I'm kind of more of a shamanette. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, because again, I don't think, I think we, we so, especially these days, like, um, glorify maybe is the right word. I don't know. We, um, romanticize, I guess, the whole idea of the spiritual walk and journey. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the books, Carolyn Meese and um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes had, has this audio recording where they're speaking together. And one of the things they said, you know, the books that, that, that used to be written about the spiritual journey had about 80 plus percent of the book was about the cost of the journey. Mm-hmm. And only like 15 or 10 percent, if you're lucky, was about the gifts of the journey. Mm-hmm. And what we've done is we do just the opposite now. If you get that much about the cost, <laughs> we get these books that tells you all about the gifts of the journey, but they're not really speaking about the cost of the journey. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the cost is worth it. For me, it has been. Um, but there is a cost. And uh, and it's not easy. It's not an easy journey. And I think so often in the journey, people start to go in. And because we've lost our real understanding of what spiritual guides and elders do, people go in and it starts to be hard and they think they're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Instead of like, no, that's the fire, you know, and fire and water. That's the like you can be formed by both. Mm-hmm. And. It just is the burning away and the crumbling of who you were before that is trying to give birth to a new you. Mm. Yeah, you've said that so, put that so beautifully. It's like the snake shedding its skin and like being reborn is as as the person that you're meant to be in order to walk the path that you're meant to be walking on. Yes. And it happens in some ways again and again and again and again. So it's not a destination. It's this process. You know, I think, you know, if even when we die, I don't know if we're done. Right. (laughs) So like, so, but I think we keep looking for, oh, this, I finally got it. Right. And there's Mm -hmm. no finally got it. Yeah, I think the moment you say that, uh, you're going to get slapped <laughs> with some. Yes. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. you have to be careful what we call up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love to look at it as almost like this spiraling journey and this, yes. this ever-deepening understanding and ever-deepening knowing of who you are and the the path you're meant to walk with the understanding that the initiations will keep on coming and will keep on taking you deeper as well. Yes, but I think because there are different initiations throughout our life, right? I mean, we have the initiation from like when we're two, there's a thing that happens when we're about two and we start identifying ourselves as separate and we go through the me, me, mine, mine, right? (laughs) No, Um, that's a form of initiation. You know, we go through lots of different initiations in our life. The initiation that we're speaking about in Fire and Water is the one where, like I said, your soul meets itself. One of the signs that I know um, that I look for when a person has been initiated into adulthood is they're really clear about their purpose. Mm -hmm. That's a sign for me. 
you know, um, because when you've met yourself, you know what you're here to do. And I often say, you know, people think sometimes that it's kind of arrogant of me to say I'm the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. But what I know is that when someone's not clear about their purpose, mine can look like arrogance to them. But that's not where it comes from. Matter of fact, I was told like to say this to someone at one point. And I remember the first time I said it because I said it to the person and I said, I'm supposed to tell you that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. And the person goes, oh, really? And I said, yes. And I think we're supposed to do some work together. And he said, well, then I think we are because I work for the church that's been dubbed the Church of Reconciliation by the Queen. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, you know, those moments and trusting like, what we the the intuition and the the um messages that are coming to us so that we're not afraid of looking silly or what will this person think or maybe I didn't really hear that or like you know whatever it is that we think we might lose um that we're willing to follow that thread mhm yeah, and I think you really hit on something really, really important there um, by saying that what, what we're afraid to lose and what we're willing to lose in order to really follow our soul's calling. Yes, and I think if we look at the chakra system, you know, um, there are two, I, I love, I think it's Carolyn Meese where I first heard her talk about, if you think of the heart chakra as an hourglass shape. The, the bottom part of the hourglass and the lower chakras are rooted in the earth. The upper part of the hourglass and the upper chakras are rooted in the heavens. Mm-hmm. And I think the centerpiece of that hourglass is the place of initiation. Mm-hmm. Because I think what initiation asks of us is that we move from being earth-centered and led in our decision-making to being spirit-centered and led in our decision-making. And the thing is, before we do that, you know, often what will happen is when we're leading from those bottom chakras, we'll betray the upper ones almost every time. Mm -hmm. So if we're leading from being afraid of my basic survival needs, I can't eat, you know, I'm afraid of my own inability to be able to fed, you know, clothe, watered, all those kind of things that we, um, we will kick out our own intuition, we'll kick out our own voice, our choice, we'll kick out the higher heart, we'll kick out our divine guidance, because we're afraid of not having that basic need, which also includes that root chakra belonging, right? That piece of about, um, do I belong? The second chakra, what is about relationships to people, to jobs, to money, to sex, to um, it's that communion place. It's the um, c- coming together that if I don't have a strong enough sense there, if I'm leading from there, if I'm afraid I'm going to lose a job or if I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to support myself or if I'm afraid I'm going to lose a relationship, then I will betray my upper chakras if I'm leading from that place. The solar plexus, if you don't have strong enough self-esteem, you will betray those upper chakras. Because when you, like, when the hit comes down, like, you get an intuition of saying or doing something. I could have said, oh, I don't have strong enough self-esteem. I can't say this to this person. I barely know. 
or actually I had only met him one time before that. Um, or I can't say this because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job or I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to support my family or I'm afraid I'm going to be homeless if I say this to this person. You'll betray your own intuition because mm-hmm. it'll get kicked out. Mm-hmm. And so as we as we grow up and not just grow older, mm-hmm. part of it is how do we not betray ourselves? Mm-hmm. How do we show up and really get, if we are spiritual beings having a human experience and not the other way around, how do I lead with spirit? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And I especially loved your uh, description of the hourglass and, and talking about the middle section of the hourglass as the initiation. Because as the sand moves through the hourglass, the initiation happens at the narrowest part of the hourglass, and which can be a real squeeze and can be really scary for a lot of people. It's almost like being in the birth canal. So I really love your metaphor there. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I remember growing up, my grandfather was a pastor of a holiness church. And one of the things that I remember hearing as a kid is this piece around it's easier to get um, what was it? It's easier to get the camel through the eye of the needle than a rich man into heaven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and I remember as I got older, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, like, what is that? Like, and when I was little, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was literal. Right. <laughs> But as I got older, started wondering and getting curious about this. And what the the eye of the needle is the entryway into Jerusalem. And to get your camel in, you have to take everything off your camel to to get it to fit through the doorway. So, you know, we have to be willing to to let go of everything. That doesn't mean that you have to give up everything, but you have to be willing to. Mm-hmm. So that the camel can get in so that then, you know, you can put stuff back on if you if you want, if you decide that you need it there. Well, that that I have the needle placed to me is inside ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, am I willing to let go of everything to find me? Mm-hmm. And if I am, then the treasures that you can get, you can't even imagine. You know, I am um, lately one of the the things I've been learning, I've been learning a lot about joy. And this may seem like a silly little example, but it's really, it just sticks with me and has me floored in so many ways. I can't, I can't tell you. Um, But my, my birthday was in May and my daughter's birthday is the day after mine. And I turned 50 this year and decided she and I were going to go to Myrtle beach and, um, and spend a couple days there together so I could be at the beach on my birthday. And rented a house and stayed there. Well, I decided that we were going to fly first class to Myrtle Beach. And the thing is, I've never flown first class before. But the thing that was striking to me about this is that it wasn't that I didn't fly first class because I didn't, like, I have more frequent flyer miles than, you know, like, (laughs) whatever, that I could have upgraded um, a long time ago. And and Tennyson, who I work with, he... um, he always has talked about, oh, he's upgraded and flew home and stuff, you know, in first class stuff. The the thing that's striking to me is I never considered it mm-hmm. until that day. Like I never, like the, the, the thought of 
like upgrading different didn't even cross my mind. And I'm wondering how many things in our life, how much of this, and just a little joy, right? A little like um, um, tending to, but how many things are waiting for us to open enough to receive it, Mm. to have? Like, um, yeah, it's like, I, I guess the piece that's so striking to me in it is that even while being in conversation with a person that I work with more than anybody else and talking to him about who, you know, is a Canadian white man who lives in the U S <laughs> who like upgrades often. And, you know, cause we're both traveling lots of places that even while talking, I wouldn't be curious about myself doing that. Mm. And it's like, what is that? What are those places in us? where we think something isn't for us enough that we don't even consider it. Yeah, absolutely. That is so wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that will give all of us who are listening to this some room for reflection and room for deeper pondering around that. Where could we find more joy and how could we treat ourselves to something that we might not even have considered doing this? Beautiful. Yes. Mm. Well, Kwanita, you have shared so much wisdom and so much, so much material for us to process deeper during this interview. And I was wondering, is there something that is still arising for you that you would love to share before we start wrapping up? I think uh, I'll just tell a little bit about the slugs. The slugs. <laughs> so, yes, <yeah>, slugs. <laughs> Because there's they they have been teaching me for years, but um, I was on Wigby Island years ago. It's actually I was at um, Christina Baldwin has a retreat called Self as the Source of the Story, is where I actually met Tennyson, and um, there were these banana slugs all over Wigby Island is off of Seattle, um, it's one of the islands up there, and I was so enchanted by these <laughs> these silly little banana slugs. And every time I'd see them, they're all over the place. I just like giggle. I was just like, so uh, it was just the silliest thing. And so I go, because who I am, I go and I look up in my animal speaks book, right? Like what are slugs? What's the medicine they're trying to bring to me? And some of the medicine that the slugs bring is that they, you know, when it gets um, too sunny, they go into the shadows too, so they don't dry out. And so it's the lesson around working with light and shadow. They also um, have the um, the slime that they have, that they, the trail behind them um, has an iridescent quality. And so it carries the mystery and the magic. And it also has an anesthetic property. And so like the indigenous people would use it for like toothaches and stuff like that. Um, they also can reproduce either with male, female, or by themselves. So they can choose how they want to be creative, how they want to reproduce. And so I had all this medicine, which I thought was wonderful. And, you know, yes, those are good lessons. And (laughs) we were um, doing a collage and I opened a National Geographic. And here, all of a sudden, there are all of these underwater slugs, (laughs) all (laughs) these beautiful colors, you know. And so I actually did my... um, my collage and a little pouch so I could take the pages of the slugs and bring them with me. And what I got the biggest medicine for the slugs for me was I never would have guessed I would be enchanted by slugs. 
And this piece about, is there room for you to surprise yourself by who you are? Mm-hmm. What are the slugs in my life? Where is it that I think I know who I am? And so that there's not room enough for me to be surprised by who I am. And so this thing about, you know, paying attention to the slugs so that we can discover more and more of ourselves. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that as well. And uh, what a wonderful, rich conversation this has been, Juanita. I really appreciate the medicine that you've brought in and your energy and Thank you for being who you are and thank you for doing what you do. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I um, just so appreciate uh, this conversation with you and being able to meet you. And um, I hope that my words are in service and uh, that they do what they are meant to do. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, everybody, just for a moment, let's focus our intention on this joyful, beautiful, inspiring energy that's been activated. And imagine sending this to everyone, everything, including the slugs, everywhere on our planet, to remember that we are all one. And the more of us have the courage to step into our sacred feminine power, the more quickly our planet will also heal and ascend. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for listening.